0: That's BlueNile.com.
1: Hey there, rational security listeners. Before we get started with this week's episode, we wanted to let you know that we're hoping to close out 2021 with a mailbag episode where we talk about topics that you bring to us. So if you have any burning questions you want us to answer, wild hypotheticals you want us to suss out, or object lessons you want to share, no matter how serious or how frivolous be sure to email them to us at rationalsecurity@lawfareblog.com but do it before December 22nd with that here's our episode jonathan you have such a lovely voice for podcasting which is
2: which is different than saying that someone has a lovely face for podcasting <laughs> which is a really mean thing that i have been told
3: it's <laughs> important to clarify that yes
2: you have yeah you have a, it's a very you have a very plummy voice I'm not sure what that means but I'm pretty sure it applies. Well thank you.
1: Plummy? I'm not sure of that adjective exactly. It sounds very seasonal. I like that. <laughs> I'm seeing sugar it's plummy, like a but
4: of full. it's like I can never listen to myself on a podcast or like I've done an oral argument and then try to listen to the recording and you just like I mean, it's always been so ingratiating to me to listen to my own voice. So it's, it's nice to hear that it's plummy for others. Uh, I'll take that as a good thing.
3: Yeah, I, I enjoy listening to myself and then feeling bad about myself for multiple
1: hours. <laughs> dreading it. I was just shocked that my voice is so much higher than I always thought it was. The yes! first time I started doing podcasts, I was like, I always thought I had kind of like a deepish voice, not deep, deep, but like a little deep. Turns out I do not. I am basically a chipmunk <laughs> and that's fine. <laughs> I had no idea. I'm a six and a half foot tall chipmunk. I don't live with it.
3: It was jarring to me as well, especially because there's a lot of uh, social science research about how people find women with deeper voices more authoritative.
4: I actually thought my voice was higher than when I listened to it the first time, you know, probably in like, I don't know, when you heard your voice for the first time. It's like when you see yourself in the mirror the first time, do we really know, you know, when you heard your recorded voice? But I always kind of pictured myself as a more like, had a little bit higher, lighter tone, and then I heard myself. And I was like, oh, ugh. oh, stop
2: showing off, Jonathan.
4: <laughs> when I looked in the mirror, I was just amazed at how much more muscular
1: I was than I thought I was. It was weird. <laughs> it's like James Earl Jones saying, I always thought Darth Vader was like a little guy. It was fine. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, aka Rational Security, back in the habit, because we have shaken off that post-holiday malaise. We have digested our stuffing and turkey and pie, and we have secured a guest for this week, unlike last week, getting back into our normal rhythm and normal form. I, of course, am your host, Scott R. Anderson of Lawfare and Brookings and other places. I'm very happy to be joined here today by my co-host, Quinta Jurassic, also of Lawfare.
3: Hello. And
1: Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello of Lawfare and the University of Minnesota, and the University of Minnesota. I'll, I gotta stop making these institutional affiliations. It always gets a little bit awkward because there's like we're free so, spirits. There's too many yes, of them. We're all free true. spirits. We're all just individuals just coming together. The, the contents a of this
3: podcast may not be attributed to our employer.
1: Yes, that is that is very true. Maybe Lawfare, but not the rest. Not the rest. And we are thrilled to have with us here today our very special guest, Jonathan Schaub of the University of Kentucky School of Law. Jonathan, thank you so much for
4: joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Excited to join the the cool kids on rational security.
2: Well, then you're about to be very disappointed.
1: (laughs) 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 I just took it, Alan. I just claimed it and owned it. And that's the way the cool kids roll. All right. That's what you got to bear in mind. People who can't see the screen should know that Jonathan is, of course, sipping, uh, you know, a mint julep doing this on a large expanse his horses soar behind him. Uh, sadly, not Pedina spirit. I think we're all in mourning today uh, over the last Kentucky Derby. I think the last Kentucky Derby champion uh, that passed away today unexpectedly. But uh, still, we're thrilled to have you here to help us hash through some of the big stories in national security news from the last week. For this, the Bad Vlad edition of Rational Security. Topic one, not so quiet on the Eastern Front. President Biden and President Putin are sitting down for a one-on-one meeting in an effort to curb tensions brought on by Russia's apparent preparations for an invasion of the Ukraine. Are Russia and the United States headed towards conflict? Topic two, January 6th pleads the fifth. The January 6th committee's subpoenas are beginning to bear fruit as a number of associates of former President Trump have either agreed to cooperate, refused, and faced possible civil and criminal penalties, or have invoked their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. What, if anything, is the committee likely to get from their testimony? And topic three, Apple bites back. Apple has now joined WhatsApp in suing the Israeli cyber intelligence company NSO Group for hacking its devices and networks on behalf of foreign regimes, including to spy on U.S. diplomats. What might this mean for the future of private sector hackers? To introduce our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you.
3: So as you may have anticipated from the Bad Vlad title, this topic involves uh, some misbehavior, one might say, by Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. There has been reporting recently, uh, I'm referring to the Washington Post, although it's been in other sources as well, about real concerns by the Ukrainian government that Russia is massing Russian troops along the eastern border with Ukraine. According to the Ukrainians, they are estimating that there are 94,000 troops along the border. The U.S. apparently estimates around 70,000, but is predicting a buildup to as many as 175,000. Meanwhile, there's also additional tensions between Russia and Ukraine because Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia of attempting to put together a coup against him, with the assistance of a prominent Ukrainian oligarch. So in the midst of all of this, President Biden and Putin had a long meeting today, um, which is Tuesday, December 7th, when we are recording. And it did not end with Biden saying that Russia had no role in election interference and bidding fealty to Putin. Big, big uh Unexpected development there. We did get a readout, also unusual. We do
1: grade these things on a curve. Exactly, in case people can't tell. There's a pretty There's strong words curve on, on the page. Things, so pretty
3: good. <laughs> um, and so the readout from the White House says. President Biden voiced the deep concerns of the United States and our European allies about Russia's escalation of forces surrounding Ukraine, made clear that the U.S. and our allies would respond with strong economic and other measures in the event of military escalation. So this story raises a lot of questions. I happen to be friends with a fair amount of scholars of Russian history and asked them all what they thought. And the consensus was that, and I quote, nobody knows. Obviously, the history of tensions between Russia and Ukraine is a very long one, but it's totally unclear to me, like, why now? Why is now the moment that Russia is choosing to embark on this sort of particularly aggressive posture? I'm curious for your all thoughts on that, because I have absolutely no idea what to make of it.
1: You know, I think this has been a really interesting development. And and. The degree to which there is just a lot of ambiguity around Putin's motivations, which isn't necessarily new, he's always been a little bit of an enigma, in part because he's somebody who, one of his signature characteristics is having a pretty high tolerance for risk, right? And that makes him willing to do things that other people would say, well, you know, your average world leader who has a low tolerance for risk might not be willing to take certain steps like invading a neighboring country like Ukraine that has a close security relationship with other major powers um, like the United States and Western Europe. But we don't put that off the table for Putin. And Putin's kind of cultivated, other than the fact that he's actually done similar things in the past uh, in regards to Crimea, in regards to... South Ossetia, other places over the last twenty years, that you've seen these sorts of military interventions, proactive by Russia. You also, he also has kind of cultivated, I think, deliberately this sort of reputation to say you don't really know what his limits are. He's willing to push the envelope more than a lot of other world actors, and that's part of his strategic advantage to some extent of engaging. What I think is interesting here is that you saw Putin actually about a week ago give an explanation for his actions before, I think it was before the Duma, before the Russian legislature. I could be wrong about that. But I know it was an address to kind of the Russian public saying that the big thing I want to get out of this is I want to get commitments from the United States, from Western powers, that NATO is not going to expand any further east. And that's the big Step here. And in kind of an interesting parallel gesture, you actually saw the United States and Russia just last week reach an agreement on what has been a longstanding issue where they both have wildly understaffed diplomatic and consular presences in each other's countries, in part because they have had this tit for tat uh, expulsions for many years that left them all dramatically understaffed. They reached a tentative agreement. It sounds like, although we haven't seen it, the terms of it exactly, to allow staffing levels to go back up, allowing consular services, but also a higher degree of diplomatic engagement. So I don't know how to read these things. Like, maybe that's just a straightforward statement of logic. Maybe it's some sort of justificatory mechanism, Russia painting itself as the non-aggressor, as the defender against NATO encroachment. Although I think that's a harder narrative to sell, Maybe, but maybe not with domestic Russian audiences. I read this honestly, and, and I see it as potentially Putin laying off some steps for an off-ramp trying to say, okay, well, I'm both facilitating the types of engagement that might be able to facilitate a resolution of this short of some sort of conflict that I've kind of set myself and put myself into. And then set out a set of demands that have rhetorical significance, really domestic significance for him. I would be probably hurt Ukraine a little politically, the Zelensky regime there. But, you know, also it's hard to make those things firm, right? It's not like Ukraine's on the verge of joining NATO now anyway. And if you had a verbal commitment that they wouldn't be able to do so, maybe NATO states will walk back from that after Russia, you know, begins to disarm a little bit on its side, right? It's it's a little bit of a rhetorical move, a political gesture more than it is any sort of firm deliverable. So in that regard, you know, I think it's actually kind of interesting we've seen Putin take these steps a little bit. And that plus the engagement today, I think, this is a sign that maybe neither party is that anxious for this to come to its full head. Uh, The question then is just really like, can the two sides find enough of an off-ramp that's politically tolerable for them that they can begin to deescalate? Right now, it's not clear exactly what that is, but maybe one of these measures is pointing that direction.
2: I agree with Scott that the question of NATO expansion is sort of the kind of alpha and omega when it comes to all things Russian foreign policy. Um, and, And I do think that one of the things that Putin is effectively demonstrating is he is making questions of NATO expansion much more concrete. You know, he is signaling that if you want to expand NATO, whether it's to Ukraine or to other countries, you're going to have to take seriously the possibility of hundreds of, you know, 100,000 Russian troops massing at the NATO border and unfortunate things happening and that escalating to, to you know, to, to where it might escalate. And, and so in this way, he's both, I think, sending a, a signal to the West of the cost of expanding NATO, and he's also, I think, flushing out a little bit the views of people who might ordinarily, generally support NATO, but when they are actually faced with the prospect of armed conflict with Russia, back off a little bit. And that's useful for him, both in terms of like giving him more information about the West's willingness to, you know, come to the defense of allied nations, and also. Emphasizing within the West that expanding NATO is not costless. Um, I think also there's an element here of of timing in terms of, you know, as Ukraine's military capabilities increase, Russian invasion becomes less and less credible, um, at least any sort of major invasion, because that involves a large land occupation and unlikely that the Russian government or the Russian people have either the resources or the willingness to engage in a sort of protracted pacification campaign. So you know, from that perspective, if Putin feels like his window of opportunity to credibly threaten Ukraine is shrinking by the year, and you combine that with the fact that his leverage over Europe, especially when it comes to energy supplies and the quickly approaching cold winter, that that he is at his highest leverage point. It's not strategically crazy for him to use that, given, again, as Scott put it, his well-known penchant for aggressiveness and risk-taking, because he might think that he might get some concessions uh, from the Ukraine, continue to eat away at Ukraine's sovereignty, continue to destabilize Ukraine, continue to have it serve as a buffer. Um, so from that perspective, I think there's a certain logic to to his actions, though obviously that in no way excuses this incredibly reckless thing that he is doing.
4: Yeah, I would say, you know, an interesting timing might re- relate as well to, you know, sort of the posture of the U.S. government in that he, and I think probably rightly views uh, the Biden administration as one that is much more likely to pursue these international agreements and ties with NATO. And I think you know, he invaded Ukraine, I think it was I was Crimea 2014 or 2015. And that was the last time we saw a lot of this. And, you know, during the Trump administration, Trump was engaged in some actions, but it often was sort of spouting rhetoric that was anti-NATO and was at odds with some NATO allies. And so, you know, it seems like, as sort of Alan was saying, Putin might see himself as, I've got this chance at leverage right here. And there's the potential that the U.S. policy will be more in favor of these sort of international agreements and, and create better relations with our European allies. And I need to head that off uh, sort of before it starts, you know, almost like a, a poker player who you have a really good hand and you put all the stuff in the pot and say, I dare you to keep drawing cards because I've got, you know, and, and he's kind of crazy, right? So you don't know if he just putting all his money in the pot with nothing or is he actually going to follow through on the bluff? but you can't really do anything about it because he has this leverage. And so I think he's he's ready. And if something happened and there's a flare-up on the border, then all the better. He can sort of send these troops in. But he's also sort of sending a message that before the U.S. starts engaging in any sort of sustained, protracted campaign to strengthen ally, to ally, strength, to strengthen NATO, to strengthen these relationships, um, they really need to consider to consider Russia. And so it's sort of like a preemptory response to what he perceives as the direction of U.S. policy under, under the Biden administration.
2: Yeah. I mean, to, to me, the, the other thing that I find notable about this or, or at least the analogy that I draw is to the, in, into the very similar situation that appears to be happening between China and Taiwan, right? I'm not saying these are linked in any way, though they might be in the sense that both China and Russia are probably looking at the West's response to the other as a way of gauging its willingness to stand up to, you know, the other party's aggression. But it does strike me that in both situations you have the similar dynamic of, you know, risk-taking autocrats, feeling their window of opportunity is closing, extending their power to, you know, what has been historically, geographically their sphere of influence. And where there just is not, in my mind, a very credible response in the in China, Taiwan case, the United States, in the Russia case, Europe and the United States. Because at the end of the day, I'm I'm just not that convinced that either U.S. citizens or the European citizens want to go to war to defend other countries.
3: One big question here in my mind is... Russia's decision making and doing this now, as opposed to under the Trump administration. And what I mean by that is that obviously, Trump was sort of very soft on Russia personally, insofar as he felt that he had this great personal relationship with Putin. But I also wonder whether he was in some ways actually more constrained in what he could do in terms of negotiating with Russia precisely because of that perception that, I mean, I don't want to go full deep state tinfoil hat, but it's definitely true that if you read, you know, old news stories about Trump interacting with, you know, Lavrov with Putin what you'll often see is that he has a conversation with them and it says you know yeah great let's do this thing right let's create a a task force about hacking and then what happens is that the National Security Council and staffers from all over the government sort of rush in and try to prevent that from happening and position the administration as you know actually we're really tough on Russia whereas Biden because he's not starting from that sort of position of disadvantage might have more room to maneuver. It's not really Nixon in China, but I mean, Scott, I don't know. Do you think I'm off base and sort of sketching out that dynamic?
1: There might be something there. I think this is the big question. Like, why is this such a different scenario and different pressure point? I mean, what... Putin's doing now look a lot more like what he did in the late Obama administration, right? Which is pretty aggressive pressure, deployment of military force to bring that pressure. And it's strange, frankly. If your goal was to accomplish the military objectives they're posturing themselves to accomplish, in Obama area it was Crimea. So that was a real one. But here, if if you know Putin really wanted to push further and take eastern Ukraine or all of Ukraine uh, and conquer it militarily, wouldn't much smarter to do than the last four years.
3: I mean, we we know that Trump was willing to sell the Ukrainians down the river because that happened.
1: Exactly, and legally, no matter how angry Congress might have gotten about it, no matter how angry Republicans might have gotten about it, in our system, and Russians are well aware of this, no one was gonna be able to force Trump to deploy troops to defend Ukraine if he didn't want to, uh, as Commander in Chief. And I seem pretty likely he did not want to. He was not interested in doing that. Certainly, certainly wasn't was would be maybe a lot more willing to make concessions around NATO enlargement given that he was himself massively skeptical of NATO enlargement. So, you know, why didn't he make that move? My suspicion, my guess, but it really is a guess, is that it tells us something about what his motives here. I don't think Putin actually wants to accomplish this military objectives. He's leveraging it for political objectives. Some of those may be international and may be genuine concern about NATO enlargement. Although, frankly, I think there is this narrative about NATO enlargement being this kind of offensive, threatening act to Russia that's like way overstated and frankly even has too much buy-in in in kind of the restraint crowd in the United States. I think that's just kind of a a misreading of what the treaty does and what the organization does and the motivation. And frankly, I think if states want to join, NATO states want to let them join their sovereignty. And other states shouldn't be dictating that, uh, as Putin is trying to do here. But insofar as he wants to, like That's a more political goal that now to accomplish that, he needs to actually get Biden to make a concession, whereas under Trump, he knew Trump was going to kind of take care of that front of his own. Separately, I think a lot is maybe domestic posturing. You know, Putin is not in a great position domestically in Russia, facing a lot of challenges and has often used uh, robust foreign policy assertiveness and projection of restoring Russia's role on the international stage to distract and pull away from domestic problems. This fits right into that. During the Trump era, you didn't have to do that because Trump was so clearly, you know, had this weird deferential posture towards Putin. Every time they had a meeting, they had an engagement, it caused so much fervor on the American side. Frankly, it is a little bit like kind of like trolling the Dems, right, or trolling the Libs. I think it's a similar idea with kind of the Russian attitude to this, which is that Russia must be significant because we make people so nervous. We don't need to take this sort of offensive action. Now, maybe that's part of it. You know, you're, you're trying to make clear that we are significant still especially because the United States has been so vocal about focusing on China and trying to treat Russia as kind of a side issue. To the point that actually I didn't realize this until I read the, the brief summary of the call that happened today, there actually isn't even a NSC senior director for Russia. It's for Russia and Central, Central Asia, I think. Um, right. There's not a committed director, which I think is just a sign of an effort to try and downstep Russia and make it a secondary security priority compared to China, which I think is actually like pretty clear something this administration wants to do. I don't think Russia likes that. Like it wants to sit at the table with the big boys, Russia and the United States and Europe to some degree. And so to do that, they keep taking these provocative steps to force themselves back onto the agenda. And this just fits into that pattern.
2: I- I'm not sure why we keep assuming, though, that. This has much, if anything, to do with American politics. I think that this is a tendency that Americans have to say, oh, well, if Putin is making this action, it must be because something in the United States changed. And I'm just, I'm not that convinced by that. I mean, the United States is not going to act in this conflict, right? I mean, this is the sad reality that no one wants to talk about, but I have not heard anything credible to the opposite, right? You know, if Putin invades Ukraine, there will be sanctions, there will be boycotts, there will be expulsions, there will be travel restrictions, there will be all of this stuff, which is not nothing, but relative to Putin's objectives as he understands them, if he is willing to expend Russian blood and treasure on what will be a very unpleasant invasion of Ukraine is all meaningless, right? The United States will not commit troops to fight Russia in Ukraine. The United States... is not going to go to DEFCON 1. The United States is not going to be able to put much pressure, if at all, on the Europeans because the Europeans have their own interests here. So, you know, that doesn't mean there's nothing the United States can't do, but I I don't think the United States has a huge amount of agency here, credibly speaking. And therefore, I don't know why we should think that Putin is hyper-focused on American politics In this moment, I just don't think it matters much, unless I'm unless I'm deeply underestimating Biden's willingness to go to war with Russia over the Ukraine. And again, I'm just you know I'm putting all the moral issues and even the geostrategic issues to the side. I just don't think it's going to happen, and I don't think anyone thinks it's going to happen.
4: I think I agree with that entirely, but I think it goes beyond sort of the question of whether America would get involved or not in a in a potential conflict. I, I think I agree completely with Scott that. Putin, I don't think he has a real intention to overtake Ukraine or to conquer the territory. Uh, to me, he's, Ukraine is, he sort of likes the status quo, right? Ukraine is heavily dependent on Russia for its energy, for its, for its natural resources. There's a good portion of Ukraine that's ethnically Russian, partially because Stalin starved you know, the, the, the Ukrainian population and, and moved the ethnic Russians in. And so there's a large part of Ukraine that is sort of loyal to to Russia and he doesn't want that. I think status quo disturbed. And to me, it's more about the potential that America plus the other parts of the of the, of Europe could join together and exert some more sort of, further influence over Ukraine or to aid the groups in Ukraine that seek more European ties and seek NATO membership and want to be thought of as a Western country more than sort. Of, so this is Ukraine is just such an interesting borderland right between the East and the West. And I think Putin wants to keep it that way and to keep it as much under his thumb as possible. And if that means sort of mounting these troops to send a message and to rattle his saber, then, then that's what he's doing, even if he doesn't really have any intention of a you know, sort of full-out invasion.
1: I just want to say, to go back to Alan's point about this being a, an impossibility of the Go war, I do not think people perceive it that way. And I think it is wrong to do so. For the simple reason that public attitudes around you know, armed conflicts and situations are, are malleable. They change rapidly in other conflicts. People have been highly skeptical of other conflicts have come around on it. And these are elites making decisions that have been put from a lot of different venues and a lot of different perspectives than just domestic political appetite. And also, you know, it's not actually a game of like, is the United States going to full war with Russia? I mean, what you usually see is a a posturing where the United States says, okay, well, we're going to put a thousand troops in Ukraine so that any sort of Russian invasion will necessarily pose a major security threat to our troops. That ups the risk level for Russia. It's part of our whole geostrategic posture like around the world. But part of that has to be that like you actually go at least to defense of your own troops And there are constitutional theories that people say allow the president to do so with fairly robustly. I take issue with some of those, but they're out there. You know, there are a lot of perspectives about, I think, popular opinion will switch quite rapidly if you see Russia start to take action against U.S. troops. So the question isn't really like the tolerance of the United States going to war for Ukraine. It's the United States' willingness to put troops in Ukraine at the invitation of the Ukrainian government, something totally allowed under national law, perceived as an ally, and then... Putin's willingness to then come back and say, oh, no, I'm hitting these guys. Now you hit back. That's actually the quantum. And that quantum that you're measuring, I actually think the United States is very willing to hit back and has the illegal authority and ability to do so, or at least the executive branch thinks it does. And that's really the game we're coming here. That's why Putin, I think, is a lot more nervous than and should be than than you give him credit for.
3: I guess I would side with Alan here just because, not to keep going back to the the first impeachment, but I have a very vivid memory of all those explainers that came out when Trump was trying to extort Zelensky essentially saying, where is Ukraine? Is there a war there? How do you pronounce the capital of Ukraine? And the, the level of American apathy um, <laughs> and lack of interest was really stunning. Maybe there's more interest now, but I kind of doubt it for good or for ill.
1: I will just say that as somebody who has been repeatedly thanked for their service in Afghanistan or <laughs> Iran, uh, despite having spent my career in and working on Iraq stuff primarily, I will say that public ignorance is, is no barrier to substantial military engagement, for better or for worse.
2: Fair and point. it is pronounced Kiev, not Kiev. Kiev.
3: If you're using Ukrainian. Which you should, should be. A complicated <laughs> subject. Uh, when
4: I lived in Kiev, I was castigated if I ever used Uh, Russian, which is the only little bits that I knew were Russian. And so I was constantly castigated for using the wrong language. But uh, it changes when you go to Eastern Ukraine, for sure.
2: So I have no segue. I'm just going to lean into it. I'm going to pull a Quinta. I'm going to pull a Jurassic. I'm going to go full Jurassic on this one and just (laughs) go straight into the next topic, uh, which is the uh, ongoing investigation into the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. So there's a lot going on in this investigation. But what I want to focus on, for our discussion, is the actions of two of what promised to be star witnesses, Jeffrey Clark and uh, John Eastman, two high-placed legal advisors to the president and the White House on and around January 6th. Jeffrey Clark, obviously the high-level Department of Justice official who, it is reported, planned to send... Letters to state governments um, telling them to pick their own slates of electors um, because DOJ was going to announce a bunch of election fraud that did not really exist. Uh, And then also John Eastman, who was acting as a sort of informal advisor, not entirely clear, but who basically wrote a memo um, arguing that uh, Vice President Pence had the ability to uh, disregard the electoral votes that came in and either pick a new slate of electors or or throw the election to the House. The uh, commission investigating the attack is requiring uh, both Eastman and Clark to testify and Eastman and Clark have announced that they intend to plead the fifth. So Jonathan, you are Lawfare's resident expert on all things pleading the fifth Mm -hmm. before Congress. So, So let me first ask just a basic question here. What does pleading the fifth actually look like when you try to do it in response to a congressional subpoena or investigation? I'm I'm reminded of that great episode of The Office where Michael Scott declares bankruptcy by walking into the middle of the office and yelling, I declare (laughs) bankruptcy. I, I assume that's not how you take the fifth. Can you just inform Congress or do you have to go there and show up and then just constantly Say you're taking the fifth to every single question. How does it actually work in practice?
4: You know, I mean, there's actually not a, a real rule. You know, this is my, you've given me a very niche expertise here in putting the fifth before Congress, but it doesn't come up that often. And because it's Congress, which is, you know, different committees have different rules, different chairmen or, or chairwomen decide to proceed in different ways. Each sort of situation is different, particularly when, you know, you have a, a partisan battle between a Democratic-controlled House and a Republican administration or vice versa. Things get more testy, right, than if it's more of a bipartisan sort of investigation and sort a private party involved. So a lot of it depends on sort of what the committee insists upon. And this actually played out previously during the Obama administration, during the investigation into the alleged targeting by the IRS of sort of tax-exempt organizations, And several Republican committees were very upset by what they perceived to be sort of unfair attention by the IRS against, you know, certain religious organizations or other not-for-profit organizations. And so they conducted an investigation. And two, uh, one of the IRS officials, Lois Lerner, pleaded the fifth. And she said in a letter, counsel said, I'm just going to take the fifth and that's it. And they said, no, you have to come in. And they insisted if she didn't come in and assert it sort of question by question, then they wouldn't consider it, you know, that she had avowedly asserted it. But then later uh, with uh, Brian Pagliano, who was a Hillary Clinton's sort of IT guy, when there was investigation into her, her private server, the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee subpoenaed him to come in. He just sent a letter and said, I took the fifth in a deposition. I'm going to take the fifth again why do you want me to come in? It's just a political spectacle. I'm not going to do it. Um, and the committee wasn't very happy about that, but he never came in. He just sort of asserted it in the letter and that was it. So a lot depends on sort of what degree of risk the witness is willing to take of, of the committee's reaction, if they want to sort of placate the committee, if they want to make them angry. But in terms of the sort of doctrinal, like if you're in a court and you're going to take the fifth, you normally have to do it question by question, Right. Um, if you go into a deposition, you would say this question, potentially, I'm not going to answer because of the potential for self-incrimination. And that would alert right, the other side that you're not going to answer this question. And you only can do it when there's a reasonable perception that you could potentially have criminal liability based on the answer. But that's those rules that would apply in uh, criminal prosecution or in another judicial setting They're very flexible when it comes to Congress, and a lot of it just sort of depends on how the interaction between Congress and the witness goes, um, and what the committee is going to allow a witness to do in a particular circumstance.
3: One of the aspects about this that I find super interesting is the sort of the posturing of it all, for for lack of a, a better word. I mean, we're recording this mere hours after uh, Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, announced that he was no longer cooperating with the committee after he was, he had said he was cooperating, but then Trump got mad at him over having published a book that said that Trump had COVID earlier than was announced. And so there's definitely seems to be an element of trying to, you know, witnesses trying to kind of get in good with Trump. And so that does make me wonder whether the more confrontational approach of pleading the fifth is something that's going to win out here in the Clark and perhaps the Eastman case. Yeah, just I would see the
4: posturing, right? I mean, posturing is the is sort of defines congressional oversight. And what Congress is doing is largely for the benefit of the public. It's for sort of its own rhetorical value because it often knows it's not going to get information from these guys. Um, and it's it's kind of posturing like, you know, Putin's posturing, right? It's all about sort of the, the show that they're putting on. And here, when you have these recalcitrant witnesses, I think they're definitely trying to make a point that Congress has the power and you can't sort of just shrug off their their subpoenas. And if you got to take the fifth, then you got to come in and do it and sort of own up to the fact that you're acknowledging that there's some potential criminal liability.
2: But isn't that an argument precisely for Congress not requiring people to come in and take the fifth question by question. I mean, the Fifth Amendment is considered a foundational constitutional entitlement that everyone has not to incriminate themselves. And that applies to, you know, good actors, that applies to bad actors, that applies to normal people, that applies to high level government officials. Um, It applies equally to all. And if Congress knows that you're just going to plead the fifth over and over again, then the only reason to make you do it in response to question after question is to generate clip after clip of you pleading the fifth, which is inevitably going to imply, or people can take inferences about that, about your potential guilt, which is exactly what pleading the fifth is supposed to allow you not to do, right? Now, in the context of a criminal trial, where there's a judge overseeing all of this, it makes sense why you'd have to do it question by question, because you know some questions might open you up to criminal liability and others don't. But here, you know, where I'm just imagining the political spectacle, and by the way, I am entirely in favor of this committee doing investigation of these individuals. But it does strike me that if we're taking the fifth seriously as a constitutional entitlement, um, what's going to happen when they just repeat the fifth for an hour um, in front of Congress is is going to undermine the whole purpose of that constitutional entitlement.
3: On the other hand, I do think it's important that, you know, posturing has its place in Congress as a sort of a way of asserting its own authority. And Josh Chaffetz has written about this as congressional over speech rather than oversight. You know, if you're trying to show that you're holding people accountable, hauling, you know, Jeffrey Clark in and actually making him plead the fifth repeatedly is a pretty powerful statement, albeit one that does raise all the questions that you point to. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: Well, you know, I, I do think the, the theater element is a strong driver here, right? Like, you know, and but there's also the other balance, which is just work time and floor time and like what the added value of the performative elements of this is like, the committee is extremely busy, set a really ambitious time frame for itself on how to do these things. And so having hearings, we have to run through a litany of questions. just may not be in anybody's interest because they can get the same 30-second soundbite by just doing it once or for a handful of questions. And they got what they need media PR-wise, and that's enough messaging for them. The question I really have here is the question of immunity, right? Pleading Fifth Amendment before Congress, Congress gave itself the power, I think in the 60s or 70s, a while ago, and I was in the statutes for, for a while, to say that even a single congressional committee, I think by a two-thirds vote, I think that would extend to select committees. I'm not 100% sure of that, or the House and the Senate. So it doesn't even have to be Congress as a whole, because they've already enacted a statute about it, can give immunity to people who claim the fifth so that they can't claim the fifth to keep themselves from testifying. And where that happens, it basically means, okay, everything you say can't be used in a court, can't be cited as evidence, and then they can be compelled to testify. So these people claiming the fifth, they're not actually getting out of testifying. They're just putting an administrative hurdle, I think, that just the Select Committee itself has to jump over. Maybe the House does, but it seems like the House could probably muster the votes too. And if that happens, then they're in the same boat again. Either they cooperate or they don't cooperate and they face civil or criminal sanctions potentially. So is this just a stalling tactic? Do they have some constitutional argument about that statute they're going to roll out, either as additional delaying tactic, or perhaps because there is a meritorious argument as to why, you know, compelling people to testify that way is not constitutional. I, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I could see any of those because the legal strategy around the stuff is like really creative, if nothing else, why we spend so much time talking about it.
3: Creative is one word.
1: Yeah, creative is one very generous word, but it gives us a lot to talk about on podcasts, which is, for our purposes, very useful. But Jonathan, t- I'd be curious what your thought about this is like, how does immunity fit in? I don't think we've seen motion on this yet, but maybe we have, and I, I've just And, and
2: Jonathan, before you answer, can I, can I ask Two more follow-up questions uh, to what Scott was saying, but they're thematically related, I promise. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, this podcast is just Jonathan teaching the rest of us how all this stuff works. <laughs> um, I, with respect to this question of whether Congress can grant immunity, um, just to follow on what Scott said, it does strike me that there are kind of two obvious wrinkles here. I'm curious your thoughts on them. One is, can Congress grant immunity just for federal offenses or also for state offenses? That seems to be relevant. And then, can Congress grant immunity? I mean, just this. I, I, and I know nothing about the statute, but it does seem to raise some very profound constitutional questions. You know, ranging from, you know, the the executive vesting clause and who controls criminal prosecution, but also the potential for abuse. I mean, if Congress can grant immunity to compel testimony, then it essentially has a de facto pardon power, because nothing then stops it from giving immunity to whoever it wants to. Scott Scott is shaking his head.
1: Just to clarify, I think the statute says, essentially, their testimony can't be used in criminal proceedings, so it's like an evidentiary okay. rule, but it's not absolute it. immunity. I could be wrong about that, but that's my recollection. 18 U.S.C. 6005 is the statutory provision for folks who want to correct me.
4: Yeah, no, I mean, I think these are, they're very sort of interesting constitutional questions, because you can also think of it as not maybe the pardon power, but even, you know, Congress sort of as taking away some of what we think of as the exclusive executive power, right, that, that they they immunize a witness for a very key piece of evidence It makes a prosecution impossible and they're sort of undermining the executive branch's ability to pursue the prosecutions it wants to. I think those are largely not an issue here because you've got a committee and administration that are that are probably on the same page, that can communicate you know, the same parties in control. I do think the worrisome thing would be something that happened with Oliver North where the immunity is given and the the courts have essentially held that anything that's sort of derived from that testimony that was compelled by giving immunity is, is off limits as well. And you can, can sort of have a lot of unforeseen consequences that might come about. And I imagine that given the range of investigations related to January 6th that are ongoing, those in, you know, we know of investigations in Georgia, there's uh, obviously all the prosecutions that are going on mm-hmm. in in D.C., and there's likely other things out there, I, I don't think the Department of Justice would want to have that sort of complicating factor, at least not right now, before it has a better sense of what might come out of it. And I don't think the committee would be willing to to sort of try to do that route against the wishes of the Department of Justice. I think there would be a, it would be a, a conversation to have. Um, if they did, if they did grant the immunity, then he you know, couldn't take the fifth anymore, have to go and testify. But I also think this, I'm going back now to one of your earlier thoughts, Alan. I mean, I do think the committee seems to legitimately think there are questions that Clark and maybe Eastman could answer, like more almost procedural questions, like what email addresses were being used and who had private accounts and where there were cell phones and things like that, where there is a, it's very sort of far fetched to think that you're talking about criminal liability with the answers to some of those questions. And so they, they may want them to come in and at least get them to answer some of those questions, um, even if they take the fifth to, to a bunch of other ones. Um, so, there, so if you, you can try you can see that there may be a legitimate reason to ask for a question by question assertion. And as well as I think we talked about the posturing angle as well. But I, I, for one, don't think they would go down the immunity route, although that's it's available. But I just think it, it throws too much of a wrench in the larger picture of criminal prosecutions involving January 6th and the, the events leading up to it.
1: Well, speaking about Oliver North, another defendant in litigation is the NSO group. That also starts with the letter N. Nice transition. That's, <laughs> that's how you say out. It doesn't have to be good. You just have to do and anyway, it.
3: It ends with the letter O, which is the first letter of Oliver Northsen. Even better.
2: I
0: think – Even I, better. Exactly. Scott,
2: I award you three Jurassics for that. I think we should rank all <laughs> – I think we should rank I'm all honored. segues on a Jurassic scale. <laughs> it's, it's logarithmic, by the way. So a five is is 10 times like – I appreciate It's like a Richter that. scale
1: of how forced the segue is. That's a, it's a solid two and a half Jurassic. <laughs> you just got to force it, man. You has got to force it. The alphabet is your friend in this particular domain. And speaking of NSO Group, uh, we saw some interesting developments last week where we saw Apple, of course, the company making the laptop I am seeing um, my lovely co-host and guest on, as well as many other devices that people use, join WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook slash Meta, in suing NSO Group, an Israeli company that has been involved in using what I think would be called, or at least in other contexts, would be called malware and other tools to penetrate security systems in devices and in online security systems to get past privacy protections, to be able to access communications. And NSO Group, uh, th- this Israeli company that operates under licenses granted by the Israeli government uh, under a kind of export control system that they have. Has used this on behalf of a number of foreign governments in ways that over the last year we've seen this kind of litany of stories that have proven increasingly problematic. That uh, starting with using it to be vaguely, potentially, or potentially significantly involved in the Jamal Khashoggi killings on behalf of the Saudi Arabia government, using software to track and help identify uh, him there, accessing communications for various types of dissidents. Just this past week, Apple unveiled that the software that's developed by NSO Group was used to access the iPhones uh, and other devices of U.S. diplomats in certain contexts. So using in ways that I think a lot of people have a lot of public problems with, potentially. So Apple filed a separate lawsuit, kind of modeled similarly on this one pursued by WhatsApp in 2019, um, that is now just able to move forward after having gotten over a jurisdictional hurdle, claiming that this action violates both the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, something in Abuse Act, I'm leaving an A out there, I can't remember what it is, but somebody will correct me, the federal law, as well as state statutes regarding California, I can't remember, I think just one of either WhatsApp or Apple did, I think may have just been WhatsApp in that front, and also kind of common in state law, contract claims, unjust enrichment claims, kind of a bundle of other sorts of legal claims that got attached to this conduct, basically arguing that in developing the software and using it in certain ways, these companies have taken action that not only accesses unlawful systems unlawfully, has also violated the contract, the terms and conditions and other items that these companies, that Apple, for instance, imposes when you're accessing their services. So Alan, you had a conversation with, uh, on the Lawfare Podcast this week about this. Tell us a little bit about where this lawsuit seems to be headed. Like, you know, We've seen this debate over these companies really come into play about this whole idea of law enforcement not being able to access the phones of terrorist suspects as a solution. But now it's being posed much more of a problem in terms of these supposedly secure devices actually aren't that secure. and We don't like the people who have the keys to unlock them. What is this all going to tell us about the direction of this industry and about privacy more generally?
2: Yeah, so the conversation you referenced was uh, between uh, me and Asaf Lubin, uh, who teaches law at Indiana, and Orrin Kerr, the leading digital criminal procedure scholar who teaches at, at Berkeley and that was on the Lawfare podcast uh, last week, where we go into this issue at some detail. Um, I, I think there are two distinct features of this that are worth separating. So one is the specific legal question of whether or not, in particular, because this is what everyone's focusing on. Apple's claim under Section 1030, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, will work. Just to summarize very briefly, 1030 is the main federal anti-hacking statute, and it is mostly a criminal statute. But it has this little provision that um, allows for a civil cause of action. So if, if I hack Scott, the feds can go after me, but Scott can also sue me civilly for damages and injunctive relief, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In fact, a large number of 1030 lawsuits aren't in fact the civil suits and a, a lot of the law that has developed around what 1030 means has developed not through criminal suits, but civil suits, which has all sorts of interesting implications. And again, for more, I, I uh, recommend listening to the, to the, my conversation on, on the lawfare podcast. I think what's tricky for Apple. And I think we just don't know what's going to happen here is whether or not Apple can bring a suit against NSO group given that NSO Group did not hack Apple directly. It didn't hack Apple the company. It did not hack the Apple iCloud servers or the Apple iMessage servers, but rather it hacked devices running Apple's operating system. Now, Apple in its filing claims that because it technically continues to own the operating system, even when you you buy a device, you're not actually buying the operating system. You're kind of leasing it in some complicated arrangement because of that it has the ability to sue NSO group Orrin was quite skeptical of this I think both on kind of the, the purposivist grounds for the statute what it was trying to accomplish but also policy considerations around just how much Apple's position would open up civil 1030 because it would essentially allow Apple or Google or Microsoft to essentially sue anyone who hacked anything that involved Apple, Microsoft, or, or you know, Google operating systems, which is like every computer in the world. Uh, but that that remains to be seen. Um, and we'll just have to see what kind of the, the lower court says, and if this gets appealed. The other issue that's worth talking about, and I think is fundamentally the more important issue, is what the effect of lawsuits like this, um, and WhatsApp's lawsuits will be on the broader spyware industry you know people have very very strong opinions on the appropriateness of what nso group is doing even putting aside the question of whether nso group is facilitating human rights abuses i mean even if nso group was only selling to the most human rights respecting countries i think there would still be a lot of controversy over what it is doing but but i do think it is worth highlighting that the position that apple is taking now is in some tension with the position it took Five years ago, for example, when it uh, refused on grounds that, you know, had a a lot of merit to them to assist the U.S. government in unlocking encrypted phones. Because in that scenario, Apple argued, look, don't make us introduce vulnerabilities to our systems. Uh, There are enough out there already. Just go use the ones that exist. Okay, five years later, that's kind of what governments have decided to do. They either build them in-house or they go out to these third party companies like NSO Group. To get these vulnerabilities at which point apple turns around and says you're hacking our stuff knock it off now apple can make that argument and it can just say look we just don't want anyone hacking our stuff ever but then it runs into the problem of apple devices being used to commit pretty serious offenses right terrorist offenses child exploitation offenses something that apple itself admits and is increasingly taking seriously as we can tell from for example uh, Apple's recent exploration into doing uh, device-side scanning for child exploitation material. So my my point here is that there are real trade-offs between companies cooperating with the government for surveillance, or companies not cooperating and the government's going to third parties, or no one doing this, but then a lot of crime happening on these platforms. And you can't have it both ways, right? You have to accept these trade-offs. And I think right now Apple is trying a little bit to have its cake and eat it too. Though again, I should emphasize this is separate from. The question of whether or not NSO Group is acting appropriately here—that's a whole another kettle of fish. And you know, in some ways, NSO Group is acting in surprisingly responsible and transparent ways, and in other ways, it's acting in very untransparent and very very irresponsible ways. So that's
4: a different issue. That that's that's worth talking about as well. Alan, those points were excellent. The the, the podcast was uh, wonderful. I'd certainly recommend it to anybody. I, I think the question of whether you know, Apple can sue is a little bit complicated. And, you know, I don't want to get into the sort of legal nuance, but the, you know, the statutory provision is, is written to, to apply to any person who suffers damage or loss by reason of the violation of the statute. And to the extent, as Justice Kagan and others have said, you know, we're all textualists now in terms of interpreting the law, like that any person is, is any person. And so Apple can claim, if it can show a loss from the violation it can potentially bring suit, and it can also point to the sort of end of the civil action that says, this sort of excludes a particular action based on negligent design or manufacture and say, look, you know, Congress knew how to exclude particular kinds of actions when it wanted to, and it never excluded this kind of action, as long as we can show a loss stemming from the violation. And so we can move forward. Um, so I think it'll be really interesting to see kind of what the courts do with that, particularly with this overlay of, this policy and Apple, which is, I guess, it uh, sort of echo the theme, right? Sort of posturing again as this privacy protector and this, this fiery press statement to say, we're going on behalf of our customers, we're going to court. And if they're successful in doing that, you might see pressure on other companies to kind of do the same thing, to act as privacy protectors, while at the same time you have this sort of underbelly, as you said, Alan, where everybody's very cozy with some of these these companies, even though they are engaging in potentially bad acts at times, but I, I think this what whether Apple is allowed to do this will sort of set the stage for how other other companies act as well.
3: So, one question I had while listening to your podcast, Ellen, was how to think about this suit by Apple in conjunction with. Some of the reporting that came out over the summer about the various compromises Apple has made in engaging in the Chinese market, in terms of creating a system that Apple says is proofed impossible for the Chinese government to access, but seems like that may not be one hundred percent true. Am I kind of comparing apples and oranges here? Because I did wonder whether you know this lawsuit offers Apple this opportunity to, as Jonathan said, you know, put itself forward as this great privacy protector. It's it's protecting people against spyware. It's taking a stand against NSO group, which for a variety of reasons makes for a pretty compelling villain. Is there a whitewashing aspect there of Apple's own conduct or am I making a comparison between two things that just aren't really comparable?
2: No, I mean there's definitely a whitewashing here. I mean the reason Apple isn't putting up a fight in China, because there's a lot of money to be made in China, you know it's why they rob the banks. That's where the money is. Um, now that that's not, I mean, Apple's a big for-profit private company. So we shouldn't expect it to have some super consistent pro-rights position. And whether Apple is being inconsistent between what it's doing in China and its posture to NSO group is not, doesn't really say anything about whether or not this particular lawsuit is good on the merits and whether we should be on Apple's side or NSO's side. I, I mean, let me be more charitable for a second i mean i guess i guess what apple could say is look you know with china we think that our engagement in china is overall good because we connect people blah blah something something and you know, at least we know that the Chinese government is limited in what it's doing, only within China. But with NSO Group, we have less control over that. I don't know. The that, more the more I say it, the, seems the, like the more threat. I say it, the yeah. more I, I don't, I don't buy it.
3: Listeners, Alan's face became increasingly contorted as that <laughs> sentence
2: went on. <laughs> should be the th- should be the thumbnail for this. Uh, Alan's trying to defend Apple's face, um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot of inconsistency there. This is why I don't take Apple's you know, press releases about user privacy, particularly seriously. But again, that is totally separate, right? Now, I'm putting on my EFF hat for a second, right? Like that's totally separate from what the answer should be on the merits. I, then there, I admit I'm, I'm very confused because of, or conflicted at the very least because of that trade-off between, um, you know, if, if no one is hacking, then we're not getting the information. But if people are hacking, then they're hacking and that's not good
1: either. You know, I had this question in listening to the podcast, uh, which I also thought was an excellent conversation. I was kind of intrigued by the focus on 1030 as opposed to the other legal actions here, because I guess it doesn't strike me as why the other ones couldn't have a similar sort of market effect. Like actually like a core part of the legal argument here, it seems to me at least, is actually like the forum selection clause of the terms and conditions that Apple uses, which I think WhatsApp did something similar. I'm not hundred percent sure where they basically said, Hey, look, we can sue you in California over this because you agree to the terms and conditions that has, uh, and yet that contains a provision saying Northern district of California is where any sort of dispute about the use of this it can arise. And it means that all of a sudden it becomes very easy to some extent for Apple to start suing in local courts that can establish personal jurisdiction over potentially far reaching defendants through that selection clause right like consent is a basis for personal jurisdiction and they can sue under you know common law contract and other things like that if they like were their terms and conditions correctly I guess maybe there's like the injunction element right because like specific performance would be weird under a contract but not unprecedented and like if you could just consistently get damages for this stuff these are all profit generating companies like that's pretty damaging and like Apple will spend the money Money on the lawyers, right? Like they hired Wilmer for this very good law firm, uh, not a cheap law firm, very good law firm to write this brief for them. So I'm curious what 1030 is. It occurred to me like maybe they're trying to like shape 1030, right? Because there is this engagement between civil and criminal provisions. Like maybe that will have a more prophylactic effect, but I'd have to think more about like what their argument would do in the criminal context but it's kind of interesting. So I don't know if like the, the the effect of this lawsuit rises and falls on 1030. I think it's like the thing that's most interesting for like people in this area of law because people love talking about federal law and state and common law is kind of like eh, less interesting. Um, but like I, I'm not sure I get there. You can do a lot of it through just the terms and conditions of contract law, I think. Uh, not to mention like unjust enrichment. So there's other arguments that I'm just not familiar enough with but that they make in their complaint. And I don't think they would make if they didn't have at least like a facial claim to it. And then the question becomes, look, if you can actually change the market dynamics around this, if you can say, hey, companies out there, this is going to be too expensive for you to do. You know, white white hat in quotations because they're very much not white hats, but uh, hatted of one color or another hacking companies. You can't do this and make it profit generating anymore. Like we're going to kill your profits. Either Apple succeeds in doing that, and all of a sudden it's a, it's achieved kind of more realistically what it thought it had back in 2015, 2016, in the going-to-dark debate, which is that they actually have a secure system, uh, at least much more secure, because they can kill the profit incentive anyone has for breaking it. Instead, it's just governmental actors, maybe criminal actors who can evade the legal system. Or they lose, and then they don't have a secure system. And then the incentives shift and say, well, look, Apple, like if you're creating these phones and people can get into them anyway, is that do you really want a system where the government and all these big deep-pocketed actors are creating a market for private actors to be able to access your phone? Or are you just going to build in a backdoor? Because at that point, you've kind of lost the battle. Maybe you should win the war by at least maintaining your own control over your device. So, so it's strange that like, this just changed actually the market incentives, depending on how this lawsuit plays out and how the extent to which it can be replicated, which I think it could for other companies. It, it really changes the whole market dynamic around this kind of burgeoning industry, which we thought solved the going dark debate to some extent in a problematic direction, maybe that means it didn't really. I don't know. I mean,
2: Scott, I think you're right. I never thought this was going to solve the going dark debate. And I always was very surprised when people raised this as the solution, because it struck me as intolerable that the steady state would be. People would find flaws in the biggest company software, not disclose it. And the companies would just sort of tolerate it in a way that they had no control over it whatsoever. I think this is, I mean, I don't want to read too many tea leaves here, but If I had to bet, I think this is a tacit admission on Apple's part that it actually it's losing the going dark war, actually, because um, I think they understand that a, a long run equilibrium in which their systems are completely inaccessible and they are just full of child pornography and, you know, violent content and criminal activity, which is what's going to happen if they're completely inaccessible. Right. For better or for worse. But that's not. Um, sustainable, and that the public will not tolerate this. And the fact that they went so far as to design and almost implement a client-side scanning feature for child exploitation material, you know they were in the end dissuaded from doing so, but I don't think they're going to shelve that for too much longer to me suggests that uh, they're not happy with, with the status quo. And so, you know, the, the, the security industry may dry up, but I do think in the long term, Apple and all the other companies are going to have to fundamentally take ownership for their devices. And that is going to mean some sort of backdoor, in quotes, or, you know, exceptional access, third-party access, something like that, because that at least the companies can design and they can monitor and they can have some control over.
1: Well, we are running long already, so we will have to leave the conversation there. But of course, this is rational security, meaning we're not going to leave you alone for the rest of your week. Oh, no, we're leaving you with a few object lessons to carry with you and to continue to dwell on even after you stop having to listen to our chatter. Quinta, why don't you get us started with your object lesson?
3: I have, unfortunately, a bit of a sad object lesson this week. Uh, Fred Hyatt, who was the editorial page editor at the Washington Post and was briefly my boss when I was there, was the boss of Ben Wittes for a very long time, passed away the other day at 66. So it was extremely early and unexpected. The Post has a really lovely obituary for him that we'll link in the show notes. And I think it really gets across how fred while i disagreed with him on a lot of things was just an incredibly kind and decent human being and really was generous with his time and with his feedback to me as a young person sort of walking in the doors of the post editorial board and being completely terrified and having no idea what i was doing there so there's been a lot of really lovely remembrances of him that people have shared, but I wanted to you know, take this chance to give my own and encourage listeners to read through some of the remembrances of him that are out there because he really made quite an impact during his time and I think will be a really lasting presence um, in how he's shaped the post editorial room.
2: My object lesson is neither lovely nor profound as Quinta's was, um, but it is true to my lived experience. And that is the white stuff that is currently falling in buckets and buckets outside of my window. That is right, everyone. Winter has come to the great north. It is currently snowing. That is my object lesson. We had an unseasonably mild November, but that's all over. And so I'm going to go into hibernation for the next four months. But one thing that I have learned in my years living in the upper Midwest is that you have to, to get through the winter, you have to ally yourself with it. You have to find some activity in which you and the winter are enjoying yourselves together rather than always being oppositional. I've tried cross-country skiing. It's fun, but it turns out I am in terrible cardiovascular uh, shape. And also I'm (laughs) really uncoordinated. I might keep working on it, but I'm thinking of doing snowshoeing this winter. So I think my object lesson is the anticipated snowshoes I'm going to buy on uh, Amazon or wherever one buys snowshoes. I don't know. Listeners, please tweet at me your suggestions for snowshoeing, how to get started with it, or other things I can do in the beautiful frigid tundra that is Minnesota.
1: As somebody who married into a snow-loving Western family, I strongly endorse snowshoeing. Certainly less like risk to life and limb than any sort of skiing, even cross-country skiing, which somehow I still almost kill myself every time I do it. Uh, so yeah, strongly endorse strongly endorse snowshoeing as an underappreciated activity. All I ever envisioned is Goofy with tennis rackets strapped to his feet. That's basically what you're doing. But but it, it's as much fun as it looks, even in the, even in those comics. Well, as folks know, we are entering the holiday season. If not, we are in the holiday season solidly. I love the holiday season. People can't see this on the podcast, but my co-host can see I have a Christmas tree behind me. My house is decked out. I've got wreaths and laurels.
3: Yeah, Scott got that stuff early.
1: I go, I am the day after Thanksgiving Christmas decoration person, uh, mostly because it's like the only day I'm confident I have time to do it. But it's up. I love it. And I love listening to Christmas music. By the way, all, all my object lessons in the next couple of weeks are all going to be holiday slash Christmas themed, uh, which is my the, the holiday I celebrate. But- Here's the problem: most holiday music/slash Christmas music sucks. It's terrible, and it's like really repetitive. You have a sentimental like attachment to it, but you hear it once or twice, and you're like, "Man, I don't want to hear this anymore." When you have a kid at home, you play a song once and they like it, you're going to hear it ten thousand times. So you got to pick carefully. But I have discovered what I think is the best Christmas album. It's actually available on Spotify now, uh, and I just looked and realized I didn't realize Rolling Stone like identified this as one of the top twenty-five Christmas albums like a couple of years ago, and I just wasn't aware of that. It's called Soul Christmas. It was released in 1968 on Atlantic Records, which if you follow like our music historian at all, you know Atlantic Records had an amazing set of artists contributing to it in the soul kind of R&B universe in the 1960s and they are all on this album. We have like Booker T and the MGs, you have Otis Redding, uh, you have Clarence Carter playing a song called Backdoor Santa which is remarkably inappropriate, not as inappropriate as the modern vernacular may suggest, but nonetheless very inappropriate holiday song. None of us went there. None of us were thinking that, Scott, until you you all did. And it
3: you said said it. No, absolutely not.
1: All I'm saying is it is a phenomenal album uh It's become the core of my like holiday party music list playlist on Spotify, which I've used to branch out and find other holiday music by these artists. But I strongly recommend it. I don't think you'd actually buy it anymore. I've been trying to find it on vinyl uh, and have not had any luck. If you do find it, send it my way. um I know you can't buy it on CD anymore, but you can get it on Spotify. So check that out. Uh, a strong, strong recommend.
4: So I guess this is my first object lesson. I will probably fail miserably at it, but. I have been, most of my objects relate to children because I have five of them that run around and that's why I'm secluded in a basement room right now. And there's a mass of toys just outside my screenshot, but I have been telling them lately. So as an undergrad, I was an astronomy minor, mostly because I didn't want to take biology or chemistry or anything that required mathematical thinking, and I wanted to go outside and do labs that would get canceled when it would rain. So there's lots of benefits to it, but I also have always really enjoyed astronomy. And so this week, if you go outside shortly after sunset, you will see Venus, Saturn, and Jupiter all in a line. The crescent moon will sort of move up the chain and align with the planets. I'm sure there is some deep uh, astrology thinking that is going on, and it means something for you know, Putin or for NSO, or, you know, there, there's some sort of deeper meaning you can tie back to the conjunction of the moon and all these planets, but it's a really cool sight just after sunset. And you go out there and look. And there's also, if you grab a pair of binoculars, which I guess would be the object, is that how this works? You, or a telescope, you can, there is a comet called Comet Leonard that is also visible shortly before sunrise, um, which you may not make it up for. But in uh, after about December 14th, it will also be. It will be visible shortly after sunset near the horizon. So it's a good week to kind of go out and check out the objects in the sky, if you're so inclined.
1: I am just thrilled that somebody discovered a comet and decided to name it Leonard. (laughs) Well, Leonard (laughs) discovered
4: it.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm sure, but still, it's a great name. At that point, just name it Nimoy. I feel like that's
1: the obvious. I mean, if you're going to be a comet, just name it Nimoy. (laughs) Exactly. I think that's exactly right. Well, sadly, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is like its a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com for liner notes to this episode and links to the articles and object lessons we've discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare. For ad-free podcast feeds and lots of other special benefits, including a feed for this very podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter at RATLsecurity. And whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating or review or hit that share button and pass it along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Batcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quentin Allen, our special guest, Jonathan Schaub, I am Scott R. Anderson. We'll talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.